Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into the show. Uh, today I've got a very special guest, but before I actually even get into that, I just wanted to give like a little prelude to everything. Uh, and that is to anyone who's listening that's kind of into podcasts and that kind of thing. Um, I started this maybe 20 or so episodes ago with a USB microphone and I've somehow found myself in a really swanky studio talking to Tim, who is the uh, CEO at DNAD. So just to say, kind of get started with you, with if you really want to do this kind of thing, because, uh, yeah, you never know what might happen. As Stephen Johnson calls it, the adjacent possible. I'm uh, not sure if you're familiar with that. I know you said you read a lot of books. Uh, I'm familiar with Stephen. He's a good guy. Yeah. I didn't know he'd said that. though. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start off by asking what your story is, Tim. So how did you end up becoming the CEO of the UK's leading awards organisation? Goodness. Um, it depends how far back you want to go there, Ricky. I, I uh, like everything, I didn't, uh, like most people, I didn't do any kind of vocation. I read English, actually, at Cambridge, uh, at a time when it was a lot easier to get in than it is now, trust me. Uh, and I became a father while I was still at university. And uh, what I really wanted to do was journalism, and which is still actually the thing that gives me the most satisfaction, writing something that's you know people like. Uh, so I went to advertising because I needed to be, A, be in London because of so, those circumstances, and I needed to earn some money. So, and I spent the next 40 years doing it. So there you go. So you think uh, that's, that's, how I, that's how you ended up? Well, the, the, that's how I ended up in advertising. Uh, and I stayed in it because it was enjoyable and every time I thought about doing something else you sort of realise you were trapped by the salary and quite enjoying it really enjoying it (laughs) and and then I sort of fell out of love in the end with running ad agencies and agency networks which I'd been lucky enough to do Uh, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do not being qualified for very much except advertising by that stage this is like seven years ago and the, the kind of the DNAD job sort of fell into my lap a good friend of mine was CEO of DNAD my predecessor also called Tim and he his family circumstances took him off to Ireland and he had to and he got me onto the board as a trustee uh, and they asked me if I wanted to do the job and there I said go. yeah I really do want to do it actually and it's been six and a half years been really good fun so I suspect most people will already know what DNAD is but mm. just for anyone who's listening that doesn't kind of what what is DNAD's uh, kind of modus operandi is that the right phrase I don't know yeah I know what you mean uh, absolutely uh, well it's actually a creative education charity uh, supported in the main by a highly prestigious global advertising and design awards show so that's not the only thing we do by any means. We're actually a little bit bigger than most people think we'll be, so like 60 or 70 people now. And we, as well as running the award show, which is complicated and demanding, we run another award show called DNAD Impact in the States, which we could talk more about. Maybe we we 
train people. We're a membership organization. We put on events and exhibitions. Uh, so we have sort of five or six lines of business, but the awards part of it is by far the most significant. With the money that we earn, and we, we make you know decent profits, surpluses, as we call them, in the, cha- <laughs> in the charity world, uh, we run the New Blood program. We run a number of events and programs that are designed to help supremely talented young people, in the main young people, into the professional industries. That's right. what we do. So, Not very much in a nutshell, but that's what we do. Yeah. No, no, yeah. that, that pretty, pretty uh, well sums it up. As I say, I'm sure most people will be familiar with that anyway. Mm. Uh, as I kind of pre-warned you prior to this, I've got a few tough questions for you, and I'm going to throw you in at the deep end. So um, I want to know why people should spend their life working in advertising. Uh, a very good question. So the reason it's mostly... So here's one definition of advertising, right? Selling shit to people who can't afford it, paid paid for with money they don't really have to impress people who don't care. And the advertising industry is at least complicit in some of the problems that afflict society today because it does sell people things they don't need and, 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 and has in the past been too defensive of its role in selling, you know, processed foods and fizzy drinks and, and you know, going further back, cigarettes and so on. The defence of which is usually, well, if it's legal to sell it, you know, it should be legal to advertise it. And I'm not sure that... I think it's sometimes more complicated than that. The reason why... There are lots of reasons, but there are some main reasons why it's a satisfying and worthwhile thing to do now. One of the things is that the advertising industry is in a great position to help the client community do well by doing good in Lord Leverhulme's great phrase back at the end of the 19th century and to do that the industry needs to discover kind of new tools new languages new strategies new ways of approaching business problems to help the client community do the right thing Uh, and as I say to prosper by doing that right thing and the internet and you know a lot of other things that have come along with the internet give consumers the right to scrutinize uh, the behavior of the people they're buying stuff from and increasingly uh, divert away from that if they're not satisfied with that company's behavior. The, the recent example of United Airlines dragging a passenger off a plane and its share price falling by 15% is a very potent example of that. It happened yesterday. Uh, so companies punish com- people co- punish companies that don't do the right thing. Agencies have to lead that charge. So do so, you think it's up to agencies to go after clients that they believe in? I think... Not every client can have a sort of purpose beyond profit that is holy and sanctified and all the rest of it. You know, it depends what you make and do. But all companies can behave ethically. And I think the advertising industry has a responsibility to show client companies how they can prosper and possibly not to work with them if they refuse to behave in in an ethical way. That's one thing. So there's some satisfaction, I think, in pursuing those purposeful agendas. And Unilever's growth plan is called the Plan for Sustainable Living, lest we forget. You know, the biggest, second biggest uh, advertising spender in the world is actually trying to do the right thing. Is that people just trying to jump on the bandwagon of that, or is it, it real? Even greenwash is a step in the right direction. Right. Because at least it's being considered at some level. And certainly Unilever and Procter Gamble and many, many other big brand-owning companies' behaviour is not greenwash. They, they are... They mean what they say. The second thing is that we in the business, and I absolutely include the design community in this, who've been thinking about this shit for longer than the advertising community, in truth, uh, we have the skills that the world needs in, because what we have to affect is behaviour change in the broadest possible sense. And, and we're the people that know how to do that, even if it's by product B as opposed to product A. And putting those skills to work... Uh, you know, at the, in the service of society, I think is a very exciting thing. And increasingly, even, you know, not even, big technology companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on actually require their employees to do some purposeful work alongside their professional work. And I think the UK is a bit slow to catch up with that, that, that kind of uh, behaviour. I think that's quite exciting. I feel like you've uh, you practised that. <laughs> that, was, no, that, no. Was, that was too good. <laughs> I... I 
in truth, I've written about it yeah, a lot. Yeah. I used to write a column in The Guardian right. about this sort of stuff. Okay. I still do occasionally. And no, I, no, I, but I, I'm, I'm convinced. I'm quite passionate about it. Yeah. And I think it is genuinely a, a more exciting industry to come into with those kinds of prospects than maybe it was 20 years ago. So talking about this idea that um, we're trying to help clients who are good and all that kind of thing, yeah. there's like a, a trend at the moment where clients are bringing their creativity in-house. What do you think to that? Well, that's a very topical question as well, isn't it? With the Pepsi ad, or very fresh in our minds. Uh, I, I think uh, it can work, actually. I, I mean, the, the, the criticism levelled at Pepsi was there was no one in the in the approval process who was able to point out how shit this particular script was before it got anywhere near a camera, right? And because they're all employees of Pepsi, so... You know, if it's being driven by someone higher up in the hierarchy, what are you going to say? Whereas an agency, in theory, would have pointed out that this was a horrible misappropriation of, you know, society's hopes and fears, which is what it was. There are some really good examples of in-house creative. Paddy, and, Paddy Power comes to well, mind. Well, Paddy Power is interesting. Uh, someone, a journalist wrote the other, uh, a couple of weeks ago that when did the bedding industry decide it was funny? And it was Paddy Power who kind of made that decision. Specsavers has done, done some great work down the years. But the, the best example is um, Channel 4 uh, with 4 Creative, who consistently do fantastic stuff. The, my favourite TV ad of the last 10 years was uh, Superhumans for the Paralympics. I thought it was just fantastic. Just fantastic. It still makes me kind of well up when I see it now. Yeah. I've seen it 50 times. You know. And uh, uh, I believe the BBC have kind of created their own agency in order yeah. to try and yeah. to get some of that in the, in in house and all. That's true. And there are there are. Other, I mean, it's increasing. It's quite. It's a lot more common than the advertising industry actually thinks, and has been. And and you know, a lot of big companies have had in house design for years and years, quietly you know doing packaging or whatever in the background. There's a for a long time, or probably even now, the fastest growing agency in London is called Oliver. And until a year or two, until it bought Dare, actually, no one had really heard of it. And it, it was putting in-house creatives, you know, uh, implants, if you like, into into client companies. That's, that's, that was its proposition. Wow. It's not, yeah. all, it's not all it does, but... Going back a little bit to one of the things you mentioned earlier, you said that, I believe you said you went to Cambridge. I did. So I read your bio, and it seems like you've had quite an exceptional education. Uh, uh, Harvard Business School. Yeah. Uh, there's a for a lot of young people who are looking at the prospect of going to university. Say you're an illustrator, and there's you're likely to rack up fifty, sixty thousand pounds. Yeah. Do you think they should go? Wow, um, I think it's a really, really tough decision. And and to a, to a certain extent, it it, well, it depends on lots of factors. It depends on what else is on offer. I think. And there are sort of hybrid degree apprenticeships in some industries that are, where, where you, you do a, a fast-track degree, but you're being paid at the same time. And that, that seems like quite... So I'll give you an e e example. My, my, I've got three daughters, and the, the oldest of which is... Tw she's 26. She's very clever. She, she actually went to Oxford and did got a fantastic degree. And, and she comes from, um, obviously, a middle-class background, you know. And she said if she had known about the, the stress that the debt she's incurred would cause her, she might have thought twice about it. And if that affects her in that way, then, you know, God knows how much it must affect people from less advantaged backgrounds. And uh, I, I think it, it's a big call. And I think you might be about to ask about this, but so I might be jumping the gun here. I think it has a terrible, terrible effect on the creative industries. It makes them far less diverse both demographically and, and actually, you know, ethnically, uh, because people can't afford it. They can't, and they can't afford to live in London when they leave university. But, you know, if you're from a, you know, a relatively disadvantaged background, wh why would you even consider incurring £60,000 £60, worth of debt? It's an unimaginable amount of money. And it's made our industry worse. Already it's in the process of making our industry worse. Especially as there's lots of alternatives that are kind of emerging online. There are, yeah. And... There are. Yeah, I, I speak to so many people about this and very few people got asked where they studied or anything. It kind of came down to their work, which yeah. obviously I think university gives you time to ferment. But if you're proactive and are capable of 
pursuing things by yourself, which a lot of university lecturers claim that students wouldn't be had they not had been forced into some form of programme. But I agree. I think it's a massive burden for people to undertake. Uh, I mean, if, if leaving the debt issue aside, which you can't, obviously, because it's enormous, of course three years at university, for most people, is a, is a fantastic experience. You know, whether, you know, almost whatever you're doing, it's just time to mature and reflect. And, you know, you're a long time working as well as the other thing, you know. So, you know, you've got 40, 45 years of it. You know, having three, relatively speaking, slack years, I think is <laughs> is... Is a is a good is a good thing. It's just that people, are, you know, this government and and its predecessors have made it very very difficult. So you'd al- you'd already preempted my next question to some degree, which mm. is DNAD is kind of responsible for highlighting the best creativity. Yep. But it's no real secret that within the ad industry, that it's, pro- it's for years been predominantly dominated by white men, yep. and that doesn't take into consideration all the different diverse backgrounds and all the cultural uh, influence they have, but they can't necessarily either uh, afford to apply for a DNAD or even get into the agencies in the first place. Yeah. How, as an industry, do we address this kind of problem of cultural diversity? So uh, I, I spoke, actually, at a, at a uh, Creative Equals conference last week that Ali Hanan, who, who founded that organisation... And so the first thing to say is I think ethnic diversity and demographic diversity uh, and gender balance are all part of the same issue, but they have very different root causes and therefore there are different solutions to them. And I I don't want to, you know, it'd be (laughs) boring for your listeners to go through all all of it now. I think the gender thing is slowly being tackled. So the title of my talk was Fuck Fairness, right? Because trying to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do because it's socially just we've seen almost no progress over the, the time that I've been in the business I mean there have been changes it's not quite as madman as it as it as it was 40 years ago but women are still seriously disadvantaged you know there, there are more women uh, than blokes coming out of arts universities I'm thinking about creative departments here but primarily and when you get to the top I think less than 12% of creative directors are women so something's going wrong and it's a tremendous loss to the to, to the industry of all that talent and all that experience, you know, kind of effectively being prevented from returning after, you know, uh, after having children. It's a ridiculous waste. So the fuck fairness thing was there's tons of evidence to, to show that uh, companies with better gender balance at senior levels perform better than their competitors. Equally, there's uh, tons of evidence that companies... Uh, with good good diversity, both sort of demographic and ethnic, perform better than their competitors. So let's not make it about social justice because that hasn't worked. Let's make it about the business. And the reason that they perform better is that less homogenised communities produce less homogenised solutions. You get a greater diversity uh, of, of, of problem solving and creative work. And that's a good thing. So I'm... Uh, honestly, my, my attitude to change, I was like, I, I kind of wanted to do the right thing, I hope, throughout my career when I was running agencies and, and before. But now I'm kind of passionate about that as well. Uh, I, you know, I think it's so important. Selling in the idea that the bottom line will change if you uh, diversify. Yeah. I mean, that's what's dri- driving the, the sustainability agenda. It's it's profit. And in the, in the end, it comes down to money. And if, if you can't make money, if you if you doing the right thing doesn't produce the right uh, result commercially, it won't happen. It, or it'll happen very, very slowly, glacially slowly. So on the subject of that, uh, kind of how you can change your agency model and that kind of thing, yep. the traditional ad model is very, very tried and tested. You know, we win clients, you pitch, you provide ideas, blah, blah, blah. You go through this uh, process that yep. everyone's very familiar with. Do you feel like there's uh, any room for innovation or do you know of any agencies that are doing things particularly differently that are getting kind of cut through? Uh, that's a really interesting question. That's a that's a lot of like, like even even for example, I wonder if uh, a, a creative teams obsolete. I don't think teams are obsolete. I think that the traditional copywriter, art director, you know, uh, uh, team m- might be on its way out the out the exit door. Uh, so here's the thing. I, I'm going to say something controversial, which which may well. Hey, why not? Brilliant. That's what, uh, I, that's okay. what I'm after, Tim. So I, I think in five to ten years, advertising as we knew it won't exist. 
So, it, because people would have found ways of avoiding it, I think a lot of uh, marketing communication will have become automated. Uh, and I think that process will have, in that process, we'll have sort of commoditized creativity and craft. However, creativity and craft will remain massively important because brands will have to find other ways of engaging with their customers, people. And that's already happening. So, uh, you know, this, you know, long form content uh, becomes more and more relevant each day. Experiential becomes more and more important. So, so P- PRs in a very, very interesting and an interesting nexus of a, of a whole load of things. You know, the, the days when they just you know sent out stereo, you know, you know photocopy press releases long gone. Uh, so, I, I I think there are companies emerging from this that I, I don't really want to name names, but you know people like gravity road sunshine smarts communicate in belfast and and people like that are are finding different ways of making that connection between goods and services it's actually one of my one of my questions which was you know are the traditional ads which sell you stuff feel like they're on the way out in the sense that branded content or i.e content you want to consume yeah that is also branded tends to be how things are moving yeah there's a kind of a little another trend which is people are less or maybe not less so but uh, as well as engaging with brands are also engaging with individuals and even as an industry more and more people are finding ways to sustain themselves independently outside of an agency and building a following and how do dnad uh look how are dnad looking to change with the growing kind of population of creatives who are, are able to sustain themselves independently who oftentimes are obviously at the top of their game in order to be able to do that well funny if i had a conversation uh uh with um a woman this afternoon who's an accomplished creative uh you know she's quite experienced uh and she's starting up a magazine as a side as a sideline and uh, which has relevance for our shift program which maybe we can talk about later uh so what do we do well we kind of try and support those things in truth so you know we'll lend our you know our media platform social uh, media um you know to promote them uh you know we'll give them exposure and airtime and support and uh where where we can and I would like us to have that reputation you know reputation that you can come to DNAD if you need something you know you need a bit of a helping hand or a shove in the right direction great uh i've again there's a a little bit of a trend going on it's but particularly in fashion at the moment, where there's this kind of re-emergence of big brand logos on clothing, which (laughs) it kind of came from 90s, it kind of 80s, 80s, 90s, yeah. And, I mean, being being slightly older than myself, um, (laughs) I I mean, this is the first time I've really seen like a a full-scale re-emergence of uh, design style and aesthetic. Is it are we lazy or is it a case of is there a reason for these repeats in history? Oh well, I'm not a big expert in this. I used to run the Levi's account at BBH though back in the eighties and uh, so I'm I'm interested in the whole fashion industry from from back then. Uh, I I think nothing comes around the same, that's the first thing, so there's no point hanging on to your old clothes because uh, it always comes back differently interpreted. I think um you know, cultural and social circumstances can give rise, you know, in different generations to similar things. Uh, I hadn't noticed this particular trend until you pointed it out. Um, I mean, I, I, certainly in my, in my 40 years in the business, I, I haven't seen anything come around, you know, in recognisably the same form, I don't think. It's interesting you, you perceive it in fashion. I, I think fashion is quite cyclical, isn't it? I don't think advertising fashion is is particularly cyclical. Well, well, it's funny. So I've noticed a bunch of posters being produced where um, it's basically like a, a montage of imagery that's been seen yeah. together in Photoshop, and yeah. that was what I was doing at, design, at college. Okay. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, like, okay, that's interesting that there's a little bit of that coming back. I'd be interested to see if grunge reemerges, which is was really popular when... when... It would. Someone said to me that um, to a... You know, twenty-two-year-old letterpress is new media. So there you go. You know. Yeah. I mean, I well, I think that that's part of what the kind of whole hipster movement is about. You know, it, it, you know, trying to be serious about it for a moment. It is about authenticity, isn't it? Authentic experiences. Yeah. You know, some of which are, you know, 
uh, media orientated. Last question on the serious questions, and I'll get into more fun stuff. So uh, people kind of point to the, the 60s as a time of creative revolution and um, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think we're in the midst of... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A new revolution or with the emergence of digital technology, or do you think it's yet to come? Or um yeah, what's your standpoint on where we're at right now? Um I do think we're in the middle of something quite significant and where we're going to go where we're going to will be significantly different from where we're coming from if that makes sense. And I, I think you're absolutely right about the 60s. DNA was founded in 1962 by a bunch of actually designers initially and then photographers and then as sometimes happens a lot of advertising people joined in because it looked like it was going to be fun. And it was a it was a they were all men as it happens because it was the 60s early 60s but they they formed DNAD because they wanted to attach their names to the work they were doing, and there was no way of doing it at that time. Uh, so the first DNAD annual is a is an exhibition guide, a sixteen page ex- exhibition guide, and but there was a huge amount going on, as you just pointed out, in you know music, in fashion, in politics, in sexual politics, and I mean it, it, in in art and literature, it was an explosion, and you know the decade changed everything, changed everything, and I, I think. We are in that period right now. I think we live in uncertain times. You know, it's a sort of cliche to say that right now. Um, but I think actually, this is perhaps a slightly oblique way of answering your question. I think we'll look back in advertising on the the 40 years between about 1960 and 2000, 2005. And it'll, it'll look like a complete aberration in terms of how you know, human beings try to communicate with other human beings in that kind of whole interruptive uh, mode. And that's definitely going. I mean, it, as I said, I think I said earlier, five or ten years, advertising as we knew it won't exist. In that era, there was a bunch of kind of figureheads. Yeah. You know, in the UK, it would be uh, John Hegarty and, yeah. and you know... Sarchies. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. the Sarchies. Yeah. Um, when, obviously, there was a bunch of people involved in, in that time. Do you think the same will happen this time round, where key figures will emerge? Yeah, I, d- I do. I think it's a mistake, just because everyone's now younger than you, to assume that there aren't big personalities involved in, in, in the business. I think there are there are some big personalities. I don't necessarily think there'll be in advertising agencies, I have to say. I think they're more likely to be in technology companies and startups and media companies. You know, you think of, you know, Vice. You think of the obvious, you know, the usual suspects, Google, Twitter, Facebook and so on. But, you know, I mean, Vice is an enormously um, influential uh, organisation now. Having grown from a biker mag, you know, Canadian biker magazine. I mean, it's, you know. You, you bring up an interesting point, which is so... I've always looked at, I think that our generation's in this funny space whereby when I was growing up, I was introduced to a computer at kind of a a, a turning point when they started to become prominent. 
and then I found that actually I was better qualified for what was coming than people that were a few years older than me. Definitely. And so the, 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 there was a power shift where it wasn't about the old teaching the young, the young were teaching the old. But then for the creative industry, they've got this problem whereby tech companies are offering stock options and really interesting stuff for yep. extremely talented creatives. Yeah you know advertising doesn't work like that so it would make sense for a really good creative to work in the tech industry which is the booming sector right that's happening ricky i mean it, i mean it, in in some things like this being one of them the states is kind of you know three to five years in our future and there's this enormous talent drain it's not actually a drain it's people not going anywhere near advertising agencies because they want to work you know they want to work in silicon valley or you know in, in a in a tech company for all the reasons you say, but it, it's not just the money and the stock options; it's the prestige and the and the fulfilment. You know, the the the, the fact that you're expected to have some purpose in your professional life, uh, the fact that you think you you know you're you're doing good stuff. Uh, so if, yeah, our deputy president Steve Vranakis, who's going to be president of DNAD next year, is a really really talented advertising creative who now works for Google. And, and as an example, actually, of his, you know ability to put his skills to good use he's greek uh, ancestry and he spent has spent quite a lot of his time on lesbos helping uh, refugees and google built an app for incoming refugees to you know, give them all the kind of in sort of six or seven languages give them all the information that they could you know usefully have about how to you know improve their circumstances essentially having landed from turkey so he's, he's a very pertinent example steve of, of talent moving out of our industry and into into a different one. So as you've uh, kind of pulled out an individual, I had a question which was, could you name one to three people within your career who have you've you've admired them for their creative for their creativity and who you could point to in some respect? Yes, I can name people. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to work at uh, BBH from its beginnings. Um, I worked there for nine years and John Hegarty and Nigel Bogle were both huge influences on me. I learned enormously from both of them. Nigel Bogle's, I'm, I'm an account guy, you know, and Nigel is, you know, the sort of the account man to end all account men. He he was brilliant, single-minded, very clever and determined. And I, I learned a lot from him. We didn't always get on perfectly. We had a few rows, actually, but he was fantastic. Hegarty... Again, super single-minded and determined and clever and great taste and uh, and produced some wonderful, wonderful work and some complete you know, gar- <laughs> garbage, it has to be said. He would admit that as well. I'm not even going to name names there, but occasionally it didn't always work out. But if you don't, you know, if you don't push the boundaries and all that. And then I worked for 12 years altogether for a man called Frank Lowe, who's also an account guy, actually. But He'd previously run CDP as managing director in the 70s, which was the best agency in the world by miles. I mean, TV, print, everything. It was fantastic. And the work they did still looks good today. And actually a commercial they made for Benson Hedges Cigarettes, a cinema commercial called Swimming Pool, was what actually made me think actually advertising looks up. For a cigarette brand? Yeah, it was a cigarette brand back in the day. Look it up on YouTube. It's still amazing. What's it called? It's called Swimming Pool. Uh, it's got iguanas in it. It's shot by Hugh Hudson. It's brilliant. Still brilliant. So for anyone that's listening to this via my website, you'll actually be able to click on these and watch them as oh, we're chatting. Yeah. Fantastic. But then, for, then Frank founded Lohan Spring, and I worked there briefly when it started, then went to BBH, and then came back as CEO, and, I, um, and eventually I, I was president of the Worldwide Network. Um, so, and Frank, who, as a human being, could be difficult sometimes, was a fantastic, fantastic advertising guy. I mean, really brilliant. If you had to pick sides of that era, like which was your favourite agency to work at? Uh, it's really difficult. BBH was fantastic because we created the best agency in London, you know, uh, and there was a bunch of us doing it. Obviously, BB&H were extremely influential, <laughs> but there was there was it was more than just them, uh, which, to read John Hagley's book, would surprise some people. Uh, anyway, uh, but <laughs> well, you, you, Lowe's was also the reason Lowe had Spink was a great agency, and it was a great agency before I got there. Trust me, 
was because it did its best work on its biggest clients. So for Heineken and Stella Artois, Tesco, you know, uh, Smirnoff, Foxhall. I mean, this was stuff that people saw, you know, that this was stuff coming to people's living rooms every evening and they'd enjoy it, it because it was intelligent and well-made and funny quite often. If you had to work for any agency in the UK today, who would you go and work for? Oh my god! And you're not allowed to. Uh, <laughs> not allowed to say the gate. You're not allowed. No, that's probably true. <laughs> um, I I like Lucky Generals a lot, and they actually are DNAD's uh, agency, and you know they do some work for us. Uh, they they if I had to choose one, it would probably be them. I I really like Mother. Um, I really like Wyden and Kennedy. Uh, yeah, it, it would be one of those agencies still desperately trying to do the best stuff, whatever the circumstances, whatever the client. I think that's you have to try. You have to try to be like that. And and there are a lot of agencies with good credit for reputations who don't. They they kind of make decisions about certain accounts that they'll just kind of turn the handle on the machine and you know and do it for the money and i i just don't think you can do that i think if you if you want to be a really really great agency you can't have clients like that because it it actually is quite destructive of the culture because some some people have to work on that business literally only got a few more questions for you so uh what's something that you've learned either throughout your career or just in life in general that's kind of changed your life forever (laughs) big question big uh um, well, I'm, this is going to sound completely contradictory because I've been rabbiting away, you know, for however long it is now. But Jeff Hadsbink, the Hadsbink of Low Hadsbink, actually did say to me, nature give, gave you uh, two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that ratio. And he meant not just professionally, but kind of in life. And I, I think that's quite good. I mean, it sounds trivial, but actually it's sort of, if you actually sit and properly listen to people, I think it's, it's it's a great way of engaging with people. It's a great way of learning stuff. Uh, it gives you time to think yourself. Um, there are, a sort of version of that these days is that there are quite a lot of people who can type faster than they can think these days. <laughs> Have you noticed, you noticed that? So depressing when you get those long emails, you thought, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be a good experience. So I, I think I think that's good advice. And that, that I've tried to take that to heart. The real answer to that, though, having given myself time to think <laughs> there's a um a book by a bloke called jim collins called good to great uh which like all business books you know quite quickly goes out of date but it has a fantastic uh, uh chapter on leadership which is still great and basically what he says is that uh the best ceos completely um subordinate their egos to the needs of the company. So they're, they're sort of, they're, they're kind of, they're prepared to give other people the credit. Um, they're extremely determined, but that determination is not sort of expressed in the form of, form of ego. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's expressed in the form of an amb- ambitions for the company. And another aspect of that is absolutely surrounding yourself with the right people. So I, I really recommend that the chapter, actually. Good, Jim Collins, good to great. I think I've actually chap- read it. Um, it's the one business book that people should read, actually. Most business books are shit. You know, it's one half good idea repeated ten times to make it a book. And and the, the Jim Collins book, although, as I say, quite a lot of the examples are now out of date and it's kind of written in a pre-internet age, there are some fantastic things in it. You stole my next question, which was, uh, you said that you'd like to read books, and uh, so I was going to ask which it, which some that you would recommend. Are, are there any others? Yeah, uh, advertising stuff. Um there's a very funny book uh, by a guy called Jerry Della Femina who had his own agency uh, uh, called, I think it's called From Those Wonderful People Who Brought You Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's just funny about advertising in the 60s. There's a good book um, by a guy called, quite a sort of spiky guy called Steve Harrison about uh, an American ad man called Howard Luck Gossage. The title of that book is called The Only Fit Work for a Grown Man is Saving the World. And he, this guy was working in the 50s and 60s in San Francisco, which was a complete backwater then in advertising terms. Uh, sort of prefigured a lot of internet stuff and cause-related stuff. 
So he named Friends of the Earth, for instance. He, he ran the Summer of Love from his agency, which was called the Firehouse. He's a very, very interesting guy. And a lot to, can be learned, you know, for today from, from then. In fact, I asked Chuck Porter this question, and he confirmed that this was true, that Crispin Porter Bogusky, when they were really, really rocking, had a sort of point in their development process when they asked themselves, what would Howard say at this point, <laughs> which I think is great. And Chuck said it was true. Um, so that's a good book. And another another good book is, uh, if you're interested in the history of advertising, the David Ogilvy book, Confessions of Our Man, is, is good. But there's a book by Andrew Cracknell called The Real Mad Men. Uh, and in response to the Mad Men series, a lot of American advertising people who'd been around in the 60s hated it because they thought it, the series, which we all loved, obviously, misrepresented the advertising business at that time and didn't pay anything like enough attention to the kind of credit revolution that was going on there. So Andrew went and uh, interviewed the survivors from that time, people like Helmut Krohn and so on. Uh, and it's good. It's a really interesting record of that time, which was important in the kind of history of advertising. We've given everyone a, a good reading list there to be cracking <laughs> on with. Yeah. I think on the subject of people that could do the advice, one question I failed to ask you earlier was, you mentioned it's increasingly difficult for young creatives to break into the industry. Yep. What's... Uh, do you have any advice for them that would be, you know, how how to make themselves stand out in an extremely saturated market? Oh no, oh god, it is difficult. And so one one thing I I meant to mention didn't is that DNAD is trialing uh, a new program called Shift, uh, which is aimed absolutely at creatively talented people who aren't making a living from that talent as things stand. And it's a night school for those people. The only quali two qualifications are that you should have that talent and you, don't, you shouldn't have an arts degree or any kind of degree. So we trialled it last year. We kind of uh, went out looking in all kinds of odd creative communities. I mean, music and street art and fashion and blogging and vlogging and so on. And from a pool of about 300, we identified 30. We held an exhibition. And we were going to take 15 through the programme. In the end, we selected 18 one woman had to drop out for childcare issues. There you go. Uh, and the reason it was a night school was so that people didn't have to give their day jobs up before they, you know, at least had some indication of whether their talent could kind of take them into the industry. So seven went have now got jobs and placements and two went back into further education. And I think for all of them it was kind of life-changing. And so we're going to run it again here. Uh, it was an extremely diverse group and there were more women than blokes and we've just launched it in New York. So um, is it is it is it costly? It's free. No it's way. It's free. And we couldn't do it without the support of the industry because you know they provide the spaces, they provide the teaching and the mentoring and the it's quite tough the sort of past, pastoral care that you need to have available for for these guys and girls is considerable because they come from this wide diversity of backgrounds and then they, they have no real idea what to expect. So it's a delicate, delicate job managing that whole process, but we're, we're doing it. So getting on one of those will be good. Um, but, you know, we've got limited resources and we can't make that widely available. Our plan longer term is to uh, have a sort of digital campus of MOOCs, massive open online courses, that will help people skill themselves up and give them a crack at getting into the industry. But we're probably a year or two away from that at the moment. But that that that's the plan. We want to intervene both earlier uh, when people are making decisions about you know what exams to take, and on a much wider basis as well. So a kind of Skillshare esque yeah. type thing, masterclass.com. Yeah, almost a sort of. Not quite open university, but that kind of concept, I suppose. So I was going to ask if you've got any projects on the go. Is that the one that you particularly wanted to highlight, or are there any others? Shift is something that is very, very important. Shift will affect our whole New Blood programme. Because the New Blood programme, admirable though it is, focuses on our, you know, arts universities. And and if, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably identifying those people who would 
probably get jobs anyway and helping them get jobs. I'm not sure if that's the greatest service to mankind. That, you know, we do a lot of other things as well, but that's um, another thing that we've launched recently that I'm very proud of is TNAD Impact, which we launched in the States in partnership with Advertising Week last September. And it's the white pencil part of DNAD broken off and given its own stage, literally. So uh, we've tried to turn it into a different kind of award show it's for stuff, for great ideas that have had a real impact, you know, in people's lives. It's why you get into advertising. Yeah, coming back to what we were talking about earlier. And the projects that were entered were, f- many of them, fantastic. So we, we've introduced this time around on, for impact a beta category in each of the 12 categories because there was some stuff there that had this huge potential to you know impact people's lives positively but which actually hadn't happened yet because it hadn't been funded and and we have a an interface between the kind of investment community and, and these projects which so w- what's one great example uh lifesaver backpack is a great example it's a it's a backpack that is also a uh, flotation uh, device because in uh, a lot of countries, Colombia is where this was invented. Literally thousands of school kids drown because they go to school on rivers. And Lord Putnam was one of the jury presidents, and he said this could be one of the most important things because, you know, global warming is going to mean the sea rises. In, and in places like Bangladesh, that is, you know, that is, and the Maldives, obviously, that that is the difference between life and death, and this could save... Or immigrants on boats... Or immigrants on boats, exactly. But the unit price was too high for it to be, you know, uh, scalable. But the more you make, the lower the price. And he was, David was very, very interested in that. Another great example. Sorry. No, no, crack on. One of the best things, I think, for projects for the last two years was uh, Intermarché, Glorious Fruits and Vegetables. So... It's sort of disfigured fruits and vegetables, literally being sold 20% cheaper in supermarkets and being turned into soups and yogurts. And so, it, so it stops food waste, right? Because all this stuff just gets thrown away. Uh, the, the supermarket makes more makes money. You know, people get nutrition that they need. You know, one of their five a day, ten a day now it's meant to be cheaper. I mean, it's just a brilliant idea, beautifully executed as it happens uh, by Marcel, the agency in Paris. And it's been picked up by 15, 20 supermarket chains around the world. I mean, that is genuinely game-changing, that. That's so we want more people doing that kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. That, and that's such a great example because every, literally everyone gets a balloon. Suppliers, the supermarkets, and the consumer. Uh, it's, it's just great. I love that. Tim, I've got one more question for you, but before I do... Um, where can people find out, well, where can people kind of follow you so they can see what you're up to and that kind of stuff? Oh, my God. Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And what's your handle? Uh, uh, my Twitter handle is Timothy Thomas Lindsay uh, and Timothy Lindsay on Instagram. Facebook I use differently, you know, it's generally friends and family. I don't put anything very interesting on there. <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn where I've started to post more articles and stuff I like. Uh, so those th- three things probably. Wicked. And final question. This is uh, where you get to drop your pearls of wisdom or some, something that's going to... I was going to... Uh, one piece of meaningful advice um, that would... Uh, here we go. Let me read it. If you could give the world one piece of meaningful advice to live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? It's like a silly black blind date question. <laughs> um, the sec- I think the secret to to happy happy a happy existence is finding something you really really like doing and then finding a way of making money out of it making a living out of it and and i think if i was giving advice to my younger self it would be don't chase the money or certainly don't get trapped by the money i mean i don't think i've necessarily done anything different but i do regret not starting my own agency and it was purely because i didn't think you know, I could walk away from a ridiculous, well, at that time, and now actually it seemed to be a ridiculous salary. So I think you have to follow your your heart occasionally. And, and I think in our business, that sometimes means turning your back on money in order to do something that's more satisfying, that, you know, gives you more satisfa- more satisfaction. That's a slightly garbled reply, but... I know this seems like a, a, a you know, horribly... 
not cliche is the wrong word, kind of gooey question to ask, but this, within our industry, kind of anxiety and stress and yeah. all these things run rampant. And so I think it's a, a valuable question to ask. And I think you answered it perfectly. Oh, so um, thank you, Tim. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. I hope, Thanks uh, for asking me. No worries. I hope people that have listened, I hope people listen in and uh, yeah, take we'll away see. from it. I'm sure they will. Okay, good. Nice one. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting, they're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 